Welcome back to the Second World Sepsis Congress. Over the next 90 minutes, we will discuss antimicrobial therapy and source control. We have a fabulous lineup of speakers, and the session will be chaired by Alison Fox Robichaud from Canada. If you want to listen to one specific speaker, please use the chapter markers. If you want to see the slides of the speakers, please go to YouTube and search for World Sepsis Congress there. Now, let me hand it over to Allison to get this session going. Allison, take it away. Good morning, wherever you're in the world. And early morning in Canada. My name is Dr. Allison Fox Robichaud. I'm a critical care physician in at McMaster University, and I'm welcoming you to this second session of the Second World Sepsis Congress. Specifically, this time we're focusing on antimicrobial therapy and source control. Um, our first speaker today is Professor Matthias Pletz, um, who's Professor of Infectious Diseases at Jena, and he will be speaking um, on improving outcome for Staphylococcus sepsis. Um, I will remind the audience that you have a public chat at which you can ask questions, and uh, we will select two or three at the end of Professor Spletz's talk. Okay. okay. So, dear audience, I want to convince you that Staph aureus bacteremia, briefly SAB, is a distinct entity that requires an aggressive treatment. And I want to make you familiar with the key concepts of this treatment. So, SAB has a high burden of disease. It is very frequent. So, in our 1,400-bed university hospital, we detect about 250 to 300 patients a year. It has a high mortality despite antibiotics that is between 15 to 30 percent. And it has a high rate of complications, namely secondary foci in 30 to 40 percent and up to 10 percent relapses. Secondary foci are the main problem in Staph aureus bacteremia. One in 10 patients will develop endocarditis. Five percent will develop septic arthritis or spondylodiscitis. But the highest risk bear patients with intracardial devices or prosthetic hips. They have a risk of 30 to 40% to develop foreign body infection during Staph aureus bacteremia. So what are the key concepts? And there is a nice Spanish study. The authors first did an intensive literature review, and then they came up with six quality of care indicators proven to decrease the mortality in Staph aureus bacteremia. And then they implemented those six quality of care indicators as a bundle in 12 Spanish hospitals, and they did a before and after analysis and found a decrease in 14-day mortality from 18 to 11%. That's almost halving mortality. And the bundle was an independent predictor of survival in the study. So what were the individual quality of care indicators? First, follow-up blood cultures. By the way, if you detect Staph aureus in a single blood culture, it's always an infection. It always needs to be treated. But in Staph aureus bacteremia, you should repeat those blood cultures after 48 to 96 hours. If they are still positive despite antibiotic treatment, this is a strong hint towards an endovascular infection or early treatment failure. Second, early source control. More than half of hospital-acquired Staph aureus bacteremia is caused by infected vascular catheters, they need to be removed immediately. If you have an abscess, it should be trained within 72 hours. And if you suspect an infected foreign body, like a prosthetic joint, it should be removed within 72 hours. 
third, echocardiography. I told you one in 10 patients will develop endocarditis, particularly patients with community-acquired staph aureus bacteremia, because it usually lasts longer until it is detected, patients with intracardial devices, and patients with positive follow-up blood cultures are at increased risk and need a TEE to exclude endocarditis. The fourth point is sometimes not known by clinicians. This is early use of intravenous cloxacillin or any other anti-staphylococcal penicillins, that is, flucloxacillin, decloxacillin, or nafcillin, for instance, as definite treatment for metacillin-susceptible staph aureus. The only alternative is cefazolin, a cephalosporin of the first generation. And this is some, uh, something tricky because MSSA is susceptible to all beta-lactams in vitro. So we, you will get an antimicrobial susceptibility testing telling you all beta-lactams work. However, in the patient, you have an increased mortality if you use any other antibiotics except uh, anti-staphylococcal penicillins or cefazolin. And there are numerous retrospective and prospective cohort studies that have shown that, for instance, with cefiroxim, mortality is doubled, and the same holds true for ceftriaxone or piptazo, for instance. The open remaining question, current matter of debate, is what is better, cefazolin or fluxacillin? And cefazolin has the advantage that it's much less hepatonephrotoxic compared to the anti-staphylococcal penicillins, but it has the disadvantage of decreased brain penetration, so it's no option for brain abscesses, and it is susceptible to the so-called inoculum effect. What's meant by that? If you have a high bacterial load, those staph aureus will produce a high amount of beta-lactamase, and sulfasolin is not that stable against this beta-lactamase like the anti-staphylococcal penicillins. However, many retrospective studies, like this US study, have shown that in the end of the day, you have a decreased mortality when you use cefazolin. In this study, it was decreased by about one-third. And there are two recent meta-analyses that confirm these results, saying that you have a lower mortality if you use cefazolin instead anti-staphylococcal penicillin. A randomized controlled trial is underway, but not yet finished. But I believe that cefazolin becomes the first choice in Staph aureus bacteremia. Fifth, if you have an MRSA bacteremia, you should use vancomycin according to draft levels, and the draft levels should be between 15 to 20 milligram per liter, not 5 to 10, like in the old textbooks. And finally, treatment duration. We all want to treat shorter to safe antibiotics. However, there are important exceptions, and Staph aureus bacteremia is one of them. You need to treat SAB at least for 14 days IV if it's uncomplicated and 28 days up to six weeks if it is complicated. So what's the definition of uncomplicated versus complicated? According to the IDSA, uncomplicated means exclusion of endocarditis, no implanted prosthesis, follow-up blood cultures are negative, the fever is sense within three days, and no evidence of metastatic sites. Then 14 days IV is sufficient. If one of those parameters is not fulfilled, you need four to six week treatments. An open question is when it is safe to switch to oral treatment in endocarditis, never. But in osteomyelitis, for instance, our sensor switches after two to three weeks. So how can we bring this bundle to the patient bed? 
and there's a meta-analysis that showed that if you involve infectious disease physicians, you can decrease mortality by 40% and relapse rate by 30%. And our center, for instance, started unsolicited SAB consultations four years ago, and we recently published the first 300 cases, and we found exactly the same numbers as in the Spanish study I've shown you. We could decrease mortality by 20, from 23 to 11%. This was highly significant. And even in the multivariate analysis, controlling for severity and comorbidity, ID consultations had an odds ratio of 0.42 for mortality. This responded to a number to treat of eight. That means every day, every eight ID consultations in SAB, you can save one life. And we even saw a dose response relation because if all of our recommendations were executed by the treating physician, we saw a decrease to 11%. If not all of our recommendations were executed, we saw a decrease of mortality only to 18%. And this is the reason because the surviving sepsis campaign in its 2016 guidelines states that early involvement of infectious disease specialists can improve outcome in Staph aureus bacteremia. So to sum up, I've shown you that Staph aureus bacteremia, and this holds true for both MSSA and MRSA, is a distinct entity requiring an aggressive approach, consisting of first, take every Staph aureus and blood culture serious and perform follow-up blood cultures. Positive follow-up blood cultures may be a hint towards early treatment failure and endovascular infection like endocarditis. Second, Identification and control of the source. This means particularly a transesophageal echocardiography in patients at risk. Third, anti-staphylococcal penicillin or cefazolin for metacillin-susceptible staph aureus bacteremia and vancomycin trough levels between 15 to 20 milligram per liter in MR SAB. Treatment duration should be at least 14 days IV for uncomplicated and four to six weeks for complicated SAB. And there are studies showing that unsolicited ID consultation can decrease mortality. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you very much, um, Professor Pletz. Um, we have one question from the audience in terms of penicillin allergies, and you may want to get into the uh, um use in penicillin allergies. I believe cefazolin is mostly safe in penicillin allergy because the most frequent penicillin allergy is amoxicillin allergy, and this is T-cell dependent, and it's actually a rush, not a septic shock. However, if the patient reports a septic, uh, sorry, not septic, <laughs> allergic shock, if the patient reports symptoms of an allergic shock, you must use another treatment. For instance, deptomycin is also very effective in um, killing bacteria at metastatic sites, except the lung. But if it's just the rush uh, caused by amoxicillin, cefazolin is safe. Um, there's a second question about the use of ampicillin sulfobactam as a first line for Staphylococcus aureus infections. Um, the same holds true for Piptazo. If you use this drug, you will see an increased mortality despite proven in vitro susceptibility. Okay. Um, and then one final question. Um, when using cloxacillin, um, 
is there a rationale for Q4H versus Q6H dosing? Yes, as for all beta lactams, uh, the time above MIC is the is the best predictor of clinical success. And if you do this more frequently, you will increase you will increase the time above MIC, and you will probably see a better clinical response. However, prospective clinical data on this issue are lacking. Thank you very much, Professor. Um, we'll uh, move on to our next speaker. My pleasure. Our next speaker this morning is um, Professor Jean Sastre, Professor of Medicine at the University School of Paris. And we're going to move on to talking about inhaled antimicrobials. Do they play a role in sepsis? Okay, so thank you, Alison, for the, the introduction. Good afternoon to everybody. And I will start immediately for the sake of time, of course. I put my disclosure on the first slide. And as you know, uh, probably very well, but very unfortunately, pneumonia in the ICU remains a common complication and leading to sepsis and septic shock in many patients, particularly, of course, when the infection is caused by a very difficult to treat microorganisms, for example, Pseudomonas aeruginosa or Acinetobacter. In that case, even using a regimen combining two drugs for a long period of time, uh, even in that case, the survival is not very good and stays below 60%. There are probably two factors that might explain these suboptimal results. First, we are now facing a lot of infection caused by resistant or poorly susceptible microorganisms, and therefore it's much more difficult uh, to treat those infections. And secondly, uh, the penetration of most antibiotics into the lung tissue is not very good, rendering difficult to reach the PKPD targets requested for a maximal bacterial killing. Most of the time, uh, the penetration of beta-lactam into the lung is below 30%. And therefore, directly uh, delivering antibiotics to the lung via aerosolization may increase the drug concentration at the infected site, and this is a key issue. And of course, also, by limiting the systemic exposure, it could also decrease the high systemic toxicity we could observe with some antibiotics, for example, amikacin or, or, or polymyxin. But this is not so easy, in fact, to do that. And there are a lot of factors that can influence the nebulization efficiency, including the size of the particle. This is probably one of the major factors. The type of the generator used for the uh, aerosolization, the ventilator circuit, the ventilator settings, and of course also the type and the severity of the lung lesions. Probably, as I said before, one of the most important parameters driving the deposition of the drug in the airways is the size of the droplet with an optimal diameter of one to three micrometer. If the size is above that, the deposition is mainly in the proximal airways and if the size of the droplets are below one, most of the time the droplets are directly exhaled with the expiratory gases. 
so the size of the droplet is really the key factor. It's possible to use three types of devices. The first one is using a jet nebulizer, the second one using a ultrasonic nebulizer, but probably the best one would be to use a vibrating mesh nebulizer. There are two potential major advantages for using that type of generator. First of all, the droplet size is very small and very well calibrated. And secondly, and this is important for some antibiotics at least, the antibiotic solution is not heated. We have now very strong data showing that using those devices, it's possible to deliver more than 40% of the dose to the deep compartment of the lung with very high concentration in tracheal aspirate as well as in the epithelial lining fluid. So really, it's now possible to target the deep compartment of the lung. Interestingly, and as expected, using antibiotic nebulization, the systemic exposure to the drug is very limited. And this is also a major advantage of such technique because it allows to use a potentially nephrotoxic drug such as amikacin or cholestine. Of course, even using the best device, there are a number of key practice recommendations to respect. First, the, humidif the humidifier should be removed from the ventilator circuit during the nebulization process. Otherwise, the size of the droplet would increase and therefore the penetration of the drug into the tracheobronchial tree will be limited. Secondly, and this is very important for safety uh, reason, the filter protecting the ventilator at the end of the expiratory circuit should be removed after each nebulization to avoid the clogging and therefore the obstruction of the ventilator circuit. This is a very dreadful complication that could lead to cardiac arrest, of course. So this is very important. We have now pretty good results showing that, at least in experimental animal models, and data obtained in small uh, uh, in a small number of ICU patients, that it's possible uh, to reach a, a, a very good concentration of the drug uh, into the tracheobronchial tree. For example, in that study conducted in ventilated piglets, so a big animal model infected with Pseudomonas aeruginosa, in that study, it was possible to sterilize the lung tissue using only nebulized cholestine. And interestingly, doing that, the results were better compared to those obtained with IV cholestine. But as you know, the penetration of IV cholestine into the lung is very poor. We have also some uh, uh, phase two studies conducted in ICU patients with uh, ventilator-associated pneumonia that have also confirmed the clinical relevance of that mode of administration. But we should be very careful, in fact, because 
when all those phase two studies, most of them purely observational and not really double blinded uh, control, in those studies, when they were uh, all review, systematically review and meta-analyze, a very small clinical benefit could be documented and only regarding the clinical resolution rate and only in observational study. Not anymore when uh, the study was randomized and controlled double-blinded. And this is, as you can imagine, a major limitation for the moment. And as shown on the next slide, and as you can see, no significant improvement in clinically uh, important outcome, such as mortality or duration of mechanical ventilation could be uh, demonstrated even in observational study. And more vexing, may, maybe, we got very recently the results of two uh, double-blinded placebo-controlled randomized trial. And those two studies, the first one assessing the potential benefit of phosphom phosphomycin plus amikacin uh, uh, in, in comparison with IV-based uh, uh, conventional uh, therapy, in that study, no benefit at all could be demonstrated, as you can see. Also, in a multinational randomized placebo-controlled double-blinded study, uh, assessing the potential uh, benefit of adjunctive therapy with amikacin compared to uh, uh, and using very good technology for making the nebulization using a mesh vibrating nebulizer synchronized with inspiration. But even doing that, no benefit at all regarding the primary endpoint, which was in that study, overall mortality at day 28. But also, and this is also very important to note, all the secondary endpoints, including adjudicated pneumonia-related mortality, early clinical response, duration of mechanical ventilation, or the number of ICU days, exactly the same results in the two treatment arms. So no benefit at all in the very large study, very well conducted, using a very good technology it was not possible to show anything. And therefore, based on that, the only very good results we, 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 we have are limited to patients infected with very difficult to treat a microorganism. For example, in patients infected in the ICU with a cholestine-only susceptible gram-negative bacillus. In that case, we have pretty good data not very strong, but pretty good data showing that using cholestine as an adjunctive therapy uh, by nebulization to best conventional IV therapy, in that study, pretty well controlled, not randomized, but the, inv the investigators control most of the uh, uh, potential confounder. And as you can see, the duration of mechanical ventilation was shorter in patients randomized, uh, not randomized, but treated with uh, cholestine by nebulization. 
in conjunction with IV conistin. So a real benefit in patients infected by very difficult to treat uh, uh, gram-negative bacillus. And therefore, based on that data, most of the recent guidelines, including those published by the ATS and the IDSA societies, recommend to restrict the use of nebulized antibiotics to patients infected with gram-negative bacillus only susceptible to cholestine or to amikacin in combination with the use of the same antibiotics, IV. So very limited indication for the moment. But of course, maybe we will uh, reconsider uh, the possibility of increasing the potential indication of the drug based on uh, additional data. We will see. Maybe it could be of some interest for using ventilator-associated trichobronchitis in patients with ventilator-associated bronchitis as a preemptive therapy, maybe, or to prevent the emergence of resistance. In fact, we have some limited data showing that using nebulized antibiotics, it's possible to prevent the emergence of resistance. Runs. But those data are very limited, and therefore we need to be uh, very careful. So thanks a lot for your attention. And if you have some questions, I, I can maybe try to answer. Thank you, Professor Shasta. Very interesting topic. Um, we do have a few questions for you. Um, the first, you've really focused on the role of cholestin. Do you have any um, historical evidence around other antibiotics and which particular pathogens? You mentioned three, um, but there would be a specific criteria in addition that would be... Um, specific for using um, inhaled Yes, this is a very uh, good question, of course. Yes, most of the data we, we, we have in patients infected by very difficult to treat microorganisms were obtained in patients infected, infected by uh, uh, Acinetobacter bomani or in some study uh, by, uh, uh, infected by Pseudomonas aeruginosa very resistant to, to antibiotics. So this is a very small fraction of patients infected by uh, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, for example. Uh, and, and you know, for, for example, in patients infected by a carbapenemase producing gram-negative bacillus, in that case, uh, uh, we have maybe some alternative. But if it's not the case, it could be also possible to, to use nebulized cholestine uh, uh, or amikacin, maybe, or phosphomycin, maybe. Okay. Um, is there any dosing difference or um, dilutional um, considerations for the preparations that should be nebulized? Yeah, this is also a very good question because, you know, it's not possible. You need to use a very specific formulation uh, using nebulization. So we have only two or three drugs uh, uh, for which uh, we have enough data to recommend their use. For example, tobramycin or, or, or amikacin, but you need to use a specific formulation, pH control with no additive particularly. Otherwise, you could observe a lot of uh, bronchospasm or other complications. So the formulation of the drug is also a key issue. And unfortunately, we have only limited data. So the, 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 um, 
The technology is important. The way you are doing the nebulization is also important as well as the formulation, the specific formulation you are using. Um, and the final question, any comments about the dosing of colistin nebulized? And yes. is there any consideration uh, when patients are in failure? It's also a very important uh, consideration because, as you know, the, the, the pharmacokinetic uh, of colistin in, is not very well uh, known, in fact. Uh, and, um, so probably we need to use a, a, a larger dose than the dose that were initially uh, recommended. So probably at least 2 million international unit uh, Q8 hours. So pretty uh, big dose using that drug by nebulization. Okay. Um, again, thank you very much, Professor Shasta. We're pleasure. going to move on to our next presentation. Our next speaker is um, Professor Tobias Velte um, from um, Hanover University, where he is Professor of Pulmonary Mem um, Medicine, and he's going to speak about novel antibiotics to overcome resistance. Yeah, hello. My name is Tobias Velte uh, from Hanover in Germany, and I want to give you a quick overview of what is new in the pipeline of uh, antibiotics. Uh, one of the major problems we have in our days is that there is an increase in resistance development, which has been on gram positives 50 years ago, uh, directly after the introduction of the first antibiotics, for example, penicillin. But now it's more a problem on gram negatives, and there's only one gram positive pathogen, which is Enterococcus faecium. Uh, which is still a problem. However, <clears throat> there are uh, other gram negatives like E. coli, Klebsiella, Pseudomonas, and Echinetobacter, which are very hard to treat in our days and which need uh, new antibiotics. One of the major problems in our days is that antibiotics uh, have been used in veterinary medicine for. Uh, a long time and in high dosages, mainly in the Asian countries, but also in Africa and South America, which creates uh, new resistance genes, for example, uh, the uh, WIM and IMP genes, which make antibiotics uh, not successful, not efficient in most of the cases. Therefore, the IDSA, the uh, uh, American Society of Infection Disease, has announced uh, a bad drugs need drugs initiative years ago uh, with uh, the hope to have 10 new antibiotics on the market in between the next 10 years. And I will show you that this, in some circumstances, has been successful. There are some problems which make it difficult to develop new antibiotics, uh, mainly regulatory purposes. So to run two uh, parallel trials with a high number of patients to show a, an efficiency of a new antibiotic is hard to make and very expensive. And we all are in discussion with the regulatory authorities to get it easier to develop antibiotics in the future. So uh, let's come up uh, with 
the current standing in terms of resistance. First, gram positives. There is worldwide no problem with streptococci. Most of the streptococci available are um, uh, not resistant against the antibiotics used, and even in the case of resistance, if there is high dosage, you overcome the resistance mechanism. MRSA had been one of the major problems in the past 10 years. However, due to better hygiene measures and a better infection control policy, MRSA now is decreasing, the rate is decreasing worldwide. In my country, in Germany, we started with 25% MRSA rate uh, in 2010, and we are now uh, down 15%, and we will come down uh, to about 10% in uh, the next years. Looking to the antibiotics, which are available on the gram-positive side, um, there are a huge number of uh, antibiotics which could be used uh, for different uh, sites of sepsis origin, uh, starting with the glycopeptides and euglycopeptides, and then we have deptomycin, we have ticocycline, we have other uh, new uh, oxasolidinones and new kinds of tetracyclines, which are effective in different circumstances. And I only want uh, to show you uh, a study comparing tetisolide, uh, a new uh, uh, more bactericidal oxasolitinone with linozolide uh, in susceptible and resistant subaureus infections. And it's a very, in, uh, a very effective drug so I'm not concerned uh, about what's happening on the gram-positive side. On the other hand side, we have the gram-negatives. The Enterobacteriaceae and the non-fermenters, mainly Pseudomonas and Achinobacter. And for all this, resistance development had increased during the last decade, and it is still increasing. In some countries, uh, mainly in uh, Southern Europe, but also in Asia, South America, and Africa, the rate of carbapenem-resistant enterobacteriaceae is up to more than 80%, and multidrug-resistant pseudomonas are up to 90%. Nevertheless, there are a number of new drugs uh, to treat pneumonia, but also sepsis, uh, for gram-negative infection, which had been launched, like ceftolosane tazobactam or ceftacidim avibactam, or which are in phase two and phase three trials at the moment. And I only want to show you the ones which uh, had been uh, launched uh, during uh, the last uh, year or the last uh, two years. I do not get the next slide. Uh, I, I will tell you without it. So, Ceftolosan uh, Tazobactam had been uh, tested in patients with urinary tract infections and also uh, with intra-abdominal infections, and it had been shown 
to be as effective as the main comparator, which had been um, which had been um, uh, a carbapenem or piperacillin tasobactam uh, on the other hand side. We are waiting for the ceftolosane tasobactam uh, study. Uh, here are now the results for the intra-abdominal and the UTI trials. We are waiting for the ceftolosane uh, trial in uh, pneumonia, and this is a very important trial because in this circumstance, ceftolosane has been dosed double, and in my mind, this is a right dosage, a doubling of the dosage which had been used in the UTI trials. Uh, however, the study results are not available. The second drug is ceftazidam avibactam. Avibactam is a new beta-lactamase inhibitor, which is also effective uh, against group D beta-lactamases, mainly OXA beta-lactamases, and Katsavi had been studied also in UTI and intra-abdominal infection, but, and this is very important also, in nosocomial and ventilator-associated pneumonia. In all these trials, the same dosage had been used and the same comparator had been used, which uh, had been a carbapenem, imipenem, or meropenem. To make a long story short, in all these trials, uh, Katsavi demonstrated a similar efficiency uh, in comparison to the comparator, to the carbapenem, and for the first time, it had been shown that a new antibiotic is as effective as an older uh, one. One of the main advantages of the Katsavi studies had been that there uh, had been shown that also uh, for strains who are peptidim resistant, using the new inhibitor, the avibactam, uh, makes it uh, a susceptible drug with a high efficiency. And as you can he see here, these are the pneumonia results demonstrating a similarity between Katsavi and the meropenem. There are other beta-lactamase inhibitors which are now in clinical studies which will broaden uh, the spectrum of the antibiotics, not only to class D beta-lactamases, but also to class C beta-lactamases, and finally, uh, which will give us a better chance uh, to overcome antibiotic resistance. And these are my last slides. This is the first paper about one of the other inhibitors, which is Vabobactam, in combination with a carbapenem, demonstrating uh, a superiority uh, in uh, patients with uh, pun-resistant infection, pun-resistant UTI uh, infection. To summarize, altogether, the initiative by the IDSA uh, to develop more antibiotics, mainly on the gram-negative side, uh, had been successful. There are new drugs available. However, the speed of resistance development is as fast as the speed of antibiotic development. So we have to hold on uh, with 
uh, our work, with uh, our initiatives. And on the other hand side, uh, we have to set up better international consortia to allow to set up a network to do trials in multidrug resistant infection uh, to make it faster, more effective, and uh, more um, uh, successful uh, to develop new antibiotics. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much, Professor Velte. Um, I have one question for you, just in the interest of time. Um, there was one figure where you showed that, um, among the gram positives that the enterococcus resistance was actually increasing. Yep. And I know in our center, VRE is a particular problem. Um, is there any drugs coming down the pipeline from that end? Yeah, two very short comments. First, VRE is increasing, and what is a little bit concerning is we do not know why. Of course, it has nothing to do with glycopeptide use. So there is a, a, a development of resistance. We are not aware uh, why it takes place, which makes it a little bit difficult. The second uh, answer is yes. Some of the new antibiotics, mainly the new uh, tetracyclines, uh, like omadacycline or ephracycline, are effective against VRE uh, and could overcome the problem. And there is a second possibility. Most of the MRSA drugs have not tested for VRE, but they may be uh, successful. So this is something we have to do, for example, uh, to look to data for daptomycin in uh, VRE or uh, for for other glycopeptides in VRE to get a better possibility. Okay. Thank you very much, Professor Velte. We, in the interest of time, we'll keep ourselves on schedule and move on to our next speaker. Thank you. Bye-bye. Our uh, next speaker is uh, Professor Charles Gomersal, um from the uh, Department of Anesthesia, Chinese University of Hong Kong, um, and Professor Gamera is going to speak specifically about um, sources, finding the source of sepsis. Challenge for us all. Alison, thank you very much. And thank you to the organizers for inviting me to speak. Uh, I'm going to give a very simple uh, clinician's guide to finding the source of sepsis uh, over the next 10 minutes. Um, so I'll start with well, why does it matter? Um, well, probably the most important reason is to identify any source that is amenable to source control measures. Uh, as you, we know, early source control is important. Identifying the uh, is important, so identifying the cause is an urgent priority. Uh, furthermore, the source may give us clues to the organism as well as being important in prognosis and predicting the clinical course. Now, in order to illustrate some of the points I want to make in this lecture, I want to tell you about a case that was recently admitted to my ICU. She was a 35-year-old woman who worked as a domestic helper in a rural area of Hong Kong. And yes, I know it's hard to imagine there are rural areas in Hong Kong, but there really are. Um, she presented to the emergency department um, with fever, chills, and a two-centimeter diameter mandib submandibular swelling 
that she said had started as an insect bite. On examination, she had associated lymphadenopathy, and the emergency department doctor made a diagnosis of an infected insect bite. However, when she was seen on the ward, the doctor there thought it was an infected sebaceous cyst and treated her with amoxicillin clavulinate. Over the next few days, she developed acute respiratory failure, liver dysfunction, coagulopathy, and shock, and had clearly progressed from infection to sepsis, and at that point, she was referred to us. We resuscitated her and simultaneously started on finding the source of sepsis. So, how do we go about this? The symptoms and signs will obviously give uh, important clues. However, it's important to realize they may be confounded by the clinical features of sepsis. Furthermore, clinical features may be misleading in the elderly, the immunocompromised, and in children. Now, fortunately, our patient did not have overt encephalopathy, and we were able to take history as well as examine her. Importantly, she was able to tell us that the submandibular lesion started as an insect bite, a piece of history that had been buried after admission to hospital. This was supported by the appearance of the lesion, which I will describe to you later. Now, apart from signs and symptoms, the other really important clues uh, come from the epidemiology of sepsis. Now, data, which is shown in uh, Bert Tillman and Hannah Wunsch's recent review of the epidemiology, confirms that what we, I think, all know clinically, that the commonest site of infection is pulmonary, followed by intra-abdominal and in urinary tract. So we would consider a chest X-ray to be a standard part of investigating a patient with sepsis. This was the chest X-ray uh, shortly after presentation to hospital, and you can see it really does not suggest pneumonia as the cause of her original infection. The question then is, is this a reliable screening tool to exclude pneumonia? Pool data uh, from uh, five studies uh, suggests that the sensitivity uh, of a chest X-ray for the diagnosis of pneumonia is only about 77%, uh, although the specificity is reasonable at about 91%. But it's important not to use these data in isolation. In this patient who had no respiratory symptoms or signs on presentation, the prior probability of pneumonia was low, so we were reasonably reassured by the normal chest X-ray and felt community-acquired pneumonia was unlikely. Interestingly, uh, and I apologize for those who don't get to see the slide, if you look at the right-hand panels, the right-hand panels, uh, sorry, the, the, the left-hand panels uh, show the, um, the uh, results, uh, sorry, the, I'm getting confused. The, uh, the left-hand panels show the results for ultrasound, and you can see the ultrasound uh, has a considerably higher uh, sensitivity at about 95%, with a similar specificity to uh, X-ray, suggesting that lung ultrasound might be a better initial investigation. However, 
By the time we saw the patient, her chest X-ray had deteriorated markedly. Uh, and although we believe this was likely to represent lung injury, secondary sepsis, it clearly was not possible to uh, exclude the possibility of a nosocomial pneumonia. So we think of the second most common cause, intra-abdominal infection. Um, the diagnosis of intra-abdominal sources of sepsis is based on clinical examination, ultrasound, and CT. Our patient had a soft abdomen with no tenderness, organomegaly, or jaundice. She had already had an ultrasound of her hepatobiliary system, which was normal, and dipstick testing of her urine was negative for leukocytes uh, and nitrites. Again, we have this question of, is the dipstick testing a reliable method of excluding the possibility of urosepsis? The uh, results are variable. So the greatest um, sensitivity comes if you uh, use a positive test for leukocytes or nitrite as an indicator of urinary tract infection. But even using the, this either-or uh, approach, the sensitivity of dipstick testing ranges from approximately uh, 65% to 80%. And the sensitivity of dipstick testing for diagnosing castor-associated urinary tract infection is equally poor. As a result, because our patient also complained of dysuria, we performed a contrast CT of her abdomen and pelvis to exclude the possibility of pyonephrosis or other intra-abdominal pathology. Uh, and her CT was normal. Now, our patient didn't have a central line, uh, but I just want to touch briefly on central venous catheter-related infection and point out that the sensitivity of differential time to positive blood cultures is actually only 80% for short-term catheters. Uh, and um, this is even if you sample all the lumens. The sensitivity, not surprisingly, is lower if you actually only sample one lumen. So what if there's no obvious focus? What differentials should you be thinking about? Now that depends a lot on risk factors in your patient or in your geographical area. But in my practice, I'd be thinking about toxic shock syndrome, invasive candidiasis, dengue, malaria, leptospirosis, brucellosis, Q fever, and rickettsial diseases, which takes us back to our patient's submandibular lesion. This was a two centimeter oval lesion with a raised erythematous edge and a necrotic center. And for those of you not familiar with, with uh, scrub typhus or typhus, this is the typical appearance of an SR associated with a tick or a mite bite. And this is where the, the fact that she lives in a rural area comes in, because it's only in one particular rural area in Hong Kong that, uh, that uh, 
mite bites uh, occur. And so this led us to the clinical diagnosis of scrub typhus, which was subsequently confirmed by serology. However, we didn't think we could exclude the possibility of nosocomial pneumonia, so she was also treated for that. So in summary, for the majority of patients, finding the source of sepsis depends on the history and examination. An investigation should largely be guided by clinical features and the epidemiology of sepsis. And this means that most patients, you're going to be thinking about pneumonia, thinking about intra-abdominal infection, and urinary tract infection. Uh, and the, the uh, investigations are targeted initially primarily to those three areas. Um, it's important that you understand the sensitivity and specificity of these investigations uh, and interpret the results in the context of the prior probability. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Professor Gramo. We actually have a question from a young high school student in the USA who's asking about finding the source of sepsis in bariatric patients. Wondering if you've got any pearls of wisdom. Well, I have to say, um, not a huge experience in uh, Hong Kong. Chinese are not generally very big. Um, so if you're more than about 60 kilos as a woman, you get labeled as obese, um, but doesn't really cause a lot of problems. So my, my experience is pretty limited. Uh, in, in very large patients, it's extraordinarily difficult. Um, even CT, uh, the CT scan tables uh, have a weight limit of about 200, 220 kilos. Uh, and so if you're above that, it's hard to do a CT. Uh, my only experience of a very large patient is when we tried to do it, we couldn't do a CT, we couldn't do an ultrasound, the, or we did an ultrasound, the radiologist told us there was a liver. Um, so I think that it's an extraordinarily difficult, difficult group to, to treat. Um, but uh, one then is left with, uh, I think, clinical examination, which again is difficult, uh, and then treating with very broad spectrum antibiotics. Um, because the, the source is generally unclear, and this is what we did in that patient. We couldn't scan, and we couldn't we couldn't CT scan, and uh, we couldn't usefully ultrasound. Um, um, I know that doesn't really answer your question, but no, uh, but it, it, it certainly does present the challenges with um, the uh, obese patient in terms mm. of determining a source of sepsis. Second question is somewhat related to that. Um, you talked briefly about the value of ultrasound in Divorce. pneumonia. Um, I'm wondering in that undifferentiated infection whether you have any value on using things like white cell scans to identify a potential focus for infection. Um, for for radionuclide white, white cell scans, I, I, my experience is you get so many hot spots, it really doesn't help you. Uh, in, and in critically ill patients, um, we have very limited access to PET-CT, um, so I have almost no experience of that. Um, but the radionuclide scans, uh, I have never found to be of any value. And um, 
the final question has to do with the um, patients on chemotherapy and where you think the most common source of sepsis is for those patients. I have an idea. But. Um, yeah. Uh, I think there's the um, two, two main areas, really, again, um, uh, chest and, and, and intra-abdominal. Uh, but with the intra-abdominal infection, I think the... Well, it's not really the, the source. I think is is the abdomen, but it's not um, necessarily a perforation. Um, so um, I know the the experimental or the, the human evidence for for translocation um, is actually not very good. Uh, but I think the the uh, the um, immunocompromised patients are a group where. Uh, it's much more likely that that is a genuine uh, cause of, of bacteremia, but it's not a source in the sense that you need to go and drain it or or, or cut it out. Well, that's a perfect segue into our next speaker. Thank you again for P Professor Garmel, Marcel, and we will move on to our next. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. So it's my great pleasure to introduce our next speaker, my uh, colleague and friend from Canada, uh, Professor John Marshall, who's Professor of Surgery and Critical Care at the University of Toronto, who's going to talk about the surgical source control. Terrific. Well, thank you very much, Alison, and thank you, uh, Professor Garmersal, who's made a very nice uh, segue into the talk that I'm going to be giving. I'm going to be speaking about source control. I've put surgical in brackets because increasingly we can accomplish this goal uh, with techniques other than surgery. But I do want to emphasize that along with antibiotics, it is one of the two effective things that we can do to treat the infections that cause sepsis. Uh, and probably it's an area that we haven't given as much uh, attention to as we might. So what do I mean by source control? Uh, we can define it as all those physical measures that are undertaken to eradicate a focused invasive infection to correct the anatomic uh, derangements that are responsible for ongoing microbial uh, contamination. So some uh, infections cannot be cured without source control. If you're looking at a necrotizing soft tissue infection or dead bowel uh, or uh, perforation of abdominal viscous, uh, their uh, source control is absolutely essential uh, for successful management and antibiotics alone are going to be uh, unsuccessful. There are, of course, other uh, infections that are not uh, readily amenable to source control. Uh, pneumonia, for example, bacteremia uh, is another example, although there are, in fact, circumstances where both may uh, render themselves uh, susceptible to source control. For example, if a bacteremia is secondary to a colonized line, uh, then removal of the line may be sufficient to uh, treat the infection. Uh, similarly, if pneumonia is complicated by an empyema, uh, drainage of the empyema and possible uh, decortication of the lung uh, is a key part of uh, successful management of the infection. So when is source control indicated? Um, first and foremost, when there is a focal infectious process. The concept uh, depends on the fact that one can convert a localized infection uh, and uh, control it by one of uh, several principles, which I'll outline on my next slide. Uh, if the infection arises from the breach of a whole organ, such as the gastrointestinal tract, the esophagus, uh, the biliary tract, uh, source control is indicated. 
Clearly, when there's tissue necrosis, antibiotics can't enter necrotic tissue, and source control is critical in uh, the face of tissue necrosis. And finally, when infection arises in relationship to a foreign body, and I'll discuss that uh, in more detail uh, a little bit later. So the principles of source control are very much principles of surgery, and they can really be summarized in four Ds. Drainage, which converts a liquid infection to uh, an external uh, collection, debridement, which is the removal of infected solid tissue, device removal, which is self-explanatory, and critical for the patient is the conversion to a normal state of health after the infection has been uh, dealt with. So the definitive repair of, a, uh, of an abnormality, an anatomic abnormality, and the restoration of uh, normal anatomy is critical to the uh, principles of source control. So what is drainage? Uh, in essence, what it drainage does is it converts a closed space infection uh, into a controlled uh, sinus or fistula. So here on this slide, you can see a liver in the abscess, or an abscess in the liver. It is characterized by a capsule uh, surrounding a collection of bacteria, uh, neutrophils, and uh, liquid debris. And placing a drain into that will create a communication between the internal uh, portion of the liver and the outside and effectively resolve that infection. Uh, on the lower part of the uh, screen, you can see a CT scan of a patient with diffuse peritonitis. Uh, unfortunately, there's no simple way uh, with uh, percutaneous drainage that that can be controlled. So just to summarize then, drainage can uh, creates a controlled sinus, which is a communication between uh, a closed space and an external surface, or a fistula, which is a communication between two epithelial line surfaces. And uh, drainage is appropriate for any infection that has a significant liquid component to it. Uh, increasingly, we're accomplishing this objective uh, using percutaneous uh, techniques, uh, such as are shown uh, here, using a percutaneous drain that is placed under image guidance, and the drain is uh, passed along a guide wire uh, using a Seldinger uh, technique. And the beauty of this particular approach is that it causes much less disruption to surrounding anatomy and much less physiologic disruption to the patient. And therefore, you can drain, uh, for example, a uh, diverticular abscess percutaneously and subsequently uh, undertake a resection of that involved portion of the sigmoid colon as a single-stage operation. This is something that in the past we used to uh, do in two or or even three uh, sources of operation. Now, most cases of uh, abscesses can be drained percutaneously, but surgery is necessary if it is not possible to create a controlled fistula. And typically, the reason for that is that the infection itself is not walled off. Uh, so a patient with diffuse peritonitis uh, is not uh, sufficiently walled off if there is dead tissue uh, uh, in association with it, uh, surgery is going to be uh, necessary. And that surgery typically will involve, uh, in the gastrointestinal tract, the creation of a stoma, which in itself is a controlled uh, fistula to uh, maintain uh, adequate source control. 
increasingly in complex infections where uh, local control can't be gained by catheter drainage, we are using uh, more radical techniques such as an open abdomen type approach, which really converts the entire peritoneal cavity into an open fistula. This has the advantage of gaining adequate source control, uh, the disadvantage of requiring uh, multiple reconstructive procedures to get the patient back to a normal state of health. But in complex uh, infections with poor localization, it can be uh, life-saving. The next principle in source control is debridement, which can be defined as the physical removal of necrotic or infected solid tissue. And this can be done through several different modalities. It can be accomplished surgically. It can be accomplished uh, with dressing changes, which is done in open surgical wounds. And it can be accomplished through the use of uh, debriding agents. So here are some examples of infections that uh, require debridement for successful uh, management, necrotizing soft tissue infections, and uh, bowel ischemia uh, uh, affecting the, uh, the small bowel. Most uh, uh, infections that require debridement need to be dealt with rapidly. Necrotizing soft tissue infections are a surgical emergency, as is ischemic or gangrenous uh, bowel. The one exception to this rule is necrotic tissue arising in association with infected pancreatic necrosis. And the reason for this is it tends to be relatively walled off in the retroperitoneum, number one, and that efforts to debride early are inevitably associated with very significant bleeding, uh, which in itself can become uh, life-threatening. So pancreatic uh, abscesses are really the exception to the rule that I've been trying to establish here. There are some very nice uh, options that have been developed recently that involve early drainage, percutaneous drainage, to decompress the liquid component of the pancreatic abscess, followed by delayed, minimally invasive approaches to remove the infected necrotic tissue. Now, the third uh, element of source control is device removal, and that is uh, the removal of any uh, device that might have become colonized. It's striking that the infections that arise in critically ill patients are typically caused by microorganisms that have a predilection to grow in biofilms. They colonize uh, prosthetic surfaces like vascular catheters or endotracheal tubes, and they're able to survive, uh, persist in these environments, and they're also uh, removed from exposure to antibiotics. And so it is very difficult to eradicate these infections purely with the use of antibiotics. Now, obviously, it depends on what the device is that's infected uh, as to how aggressive one wants to be with uh, source control. If it's an infected Foley catheter, then it is a simple matter to replace the Foley catheter. And in most cases of uh, catheter-related urinary tract infections, there really isn't a role for systemic antibiotics. Central lines similarly can usually be replaced, although sometimes access can be uh, a challenge. A prosthetic joint or a heart valve involves significantly more risk to the patient, and it's for that reason that we typically treat endocarditis with antibiotics before considering options for uh, source control. So this is a fairly 
uh, rapid uh, overview, uh, and I'm trying to focus on the principles here of source control, the principles being draining any component of infection that is liquid and localized, debriding any component of infection that involves necrotic tissue, and removing any devices that have become colonized, uh, typically uh, Foley catheters, intravenous lines, and potentially endotracheal tubes, uh, although that has not become a standard part of the management of ventilator-associated pneumonia. I won't go into the details of definitive repair, as that falls more exclusively in the realm of uh, surgery. Timing, it should be as rapid as feasible, uh, particularly if necrosis uh, is present, but there are very few data available on optimal timing of source control. I think as a general principle, though, uh, early source control is important. Now, one of the important concepts of source control is that it is an in many cases, an alternative to antibiotics, and successful source control can actually minimize exposure to antibiotics. This was the very nice study looking at uh, the duration of antimicrobial therapy for intra-abdominal infection uh, led by Rob Sawyer. And one of the things that I think is particularly important in this is that, first of all, there's no difference in uh, outcomes uh, between a short course and a long course of antibiotics if source control is efficacious, uh, no difference in uh, secondary uh, infections such as surgical site infections, but a significantly more rapid diagnosis of those infections uh, in patients who have a shorter duration of antibiotics. So just to summarize, uh, it's important in any patient with sepsis to consider opportunities for source control, undertake these as rapidly as feasible, reevaluate the adequacy of source control when sepsis fails to resolve, think about this rather than an antibiotic failure, and engage surgical expertise in decision-making. Although the modalities for source control are widely available, a lot of the thought processes still sort of fall in the uh, area of surgery, and I think this is an area where collaboration among specialties is really important. Thanks very much, and I'd be happy to take any questions you might have. Thanks, John. There was one question particularly around very critically ill patients, patients in shock with an obvious source of intra-abdominal sepsis and the risks of taking those patients to the operating room. I think it depends on what the uh, source of the sepsis is. If it is ischemic bowel, uh, one has to start, one really has to simultaneously resuscitate and resect uh, because that's only going to get worse uh, at the longer uh, that one delays. If it's a patient with uh, peritonitis, then I think is secondary, for example, to uh, perforated peptic ulcer, perforated diverticulitis, uh, then I think it's more appropriate to focus on uh, administering antibiotics, trying to stabilize the patient as much as possible before the patient goes to the operating room. So it really is uh, it, it, tissue necrosis within the abdomen, necrotic bowel, really is in a, a surgical emergency, uh, pus within the ab abdomen less so. Um, I wonder if you've got any thoughts about the vacuum systems that have been coming out and their ability to control. I was thinking particularly about your open abdomens and uh, adding a vacuum system to those when you've had uh, an intra-abdominal contamination. Uh, there's certainly a significant advance in managing patients, for primarily from a nursing perspective. Uh, it's easier to maintain an open abdomen uh, with a, a vacuum-type system uh, as addressing it facilitates uh, re-exploration if that's necessary. Uh, it's associated with a lower risk of fistula formation and other complications. And it does seem to, in the longer term, expedite uh, wound contraction and granulation. So all of those things uh, really simplify the process.
process of uh, nursing care in the intensive care unit and ultimately the uh, recovery of the patient uh, once they've been discharged from the ICU. And then one final question, that ultimate decision between local dissection of a necrotizing limb versus the decision to amputate. I think the critical factor there is is their muscle involvement. Uh, in necrotizing fasciitis, typically it is the skin and subcutaneous fat uh, that's involved and the, the muscle is intact. And so I think you want to assess the viability of the muscle. If the muscle is necrotic, I think then amputation becomes necessary. But I think it's equally true that there are uh, a number of unnecessary limb amputations for patients who could be managed simply by adequate uh, surgical debridement of skin and subcutaneous uh, fatty tissue. So think about function uh, as being the determining factor uh, in that, and that function is the viability of the muscle. Thank you, John. It's time to move on to our final Thanks, speaker thanks. of this session. So our final speaker is um, Professor Arjun Dondarp, who is a professor of internal medicine, infectious diseases, and critical care in Bangkok at Mahidol University, um, who's going to speak about choosing the right antimicrobials in our resource-limited settings. Yeah, thank you very much for your introduction and welcome everybody online. So this will just be a brief uh, presentation to highlight some aspects, specific aspects of treating patients with antibiotics in, in resource-poor settings, which will also frequently be uh, tropical settings. And uh, the topics I uh, will cover is uh, something about availability of antibiotics, uh, specific causes of sepsis that we see in the tropical world that are not covered uh, by the usual empirical treatments, um, something about antibiotic resistance uh, patterns, which are uh, a bigger problem in resource-poor settings than uh, in Western countries, and then, uh, and then highlights the importance of development of local guidelines for your local hospital where you work. So the next slide is about uh, excess versus excess of antibiotics. So uh, developing countries are often blamed for overuse of antibiotics, and uh, that is true in a way because uh, antibiotics are usually can be bought over the counter, uh, are used for every fever uh, there is. But at the same time, uh, because of poverty, uh, there are large populations that do not have access to antibiotics. And you can see that in this slide, uh, where on the y-axis you see uh, the number uh, of patients of under five years old uh, per 100,000 population that uh, die per year from uh, pneumonia with the organisms you see there. And on the x-axis, the number of those patients that have access to antibiotics. And you see, for instance, India is a, is a big circle there uh, where access to antibiotics is still a huge problem. And you see many, many other countries in the developing world uh, with very low uh, proportion of patients with access to antibiotics. So there's both an excess and an excess problem with antibiotics. Then highlight uh, some of the causes of uh, sepsis and severe sepsis that we see in, in the tropics uh, that are not covered by the usual em empirical treatments. 
uh, depends very much where in the tropical world uh, you are. Um, so I mainly work in Southeast Asia. And uh, here, uh, sepsis is often caused by a, a soil-dwelling uh, bacteria, Burkholderia pseudomeli. And in northeastern Thailand, 20% of all sepsis is caused by this uh, bacterium. Uh, and it's not covered by, uh, by third-generation Campylosporins or gentamicin. So you have to give eftacidin or carbapenin. Uh, sorry for the spelling mistake there. Um, so you have to know then in your local hospital that this is a common source of, uh, of sepsis. And another example is on the right-hand side. Uh, this is more in northern Thailand and in Laos, where uh, severe febrile illness and sepsis uh, is often caused by Scriptivus orienta tutsukamushi, uh, and also leptospirosis and dengue and mewing tibus is uh, very common. So scriptivus is another example, uh, not covered by third generation cephalosporin, but is doxycycline uh, responsive. So you have to know your local epidemiology. And of course, if you're in the tropics, uh, you also have the real tropical diseases. Uh, malaria uh, always has to be excluded when a patient comes in with a sepsis syndrome. In Africa, there will be mainly children. Uh, in Southeast Asia and, and South America, although there's less malaria, can be all age groups. And of course, then uh, you need to give an parenteral uh, antimalarial. Uh, so uh, artesinate is the first line there. And then dengue, severe dengue and dengue shock, uh, also common in tropical countries. Uh, it's spreading through the tropical world, but also more and more in the subtropics because the vector of the disease. So uh, Edis aegypti and Edis albopixis is spreading uh, ever further. Also there, um, of course, it's not treated with antibiotics, but also other aspects of treatment like fluid management will be different in severe dengue compared to bacterial sepsis. Um, if you do uh, large surveys on the causes of sepsis, and here uh, as an example, a large study we did in Indonesia, Thailand, and Vietnam, uh, doing blood cultures in all severe infections uh, that were admitted to the hospital, you see a lot of common pathogens also growing. Um, nevertheless, I highlighted some of the uh, uh, less usual uh, pathogens that, that come up. As I showed in my last slide, Orienta tutsukamushi, which is carptivus, leptospirosis. Uh, in uh, cause of meningitis, especially in Vietnam, is, uh, is uh, Streptococcus suis, uh, a big disease that can easily be transferred to humans. So again, it highlights that uh, you have to know your local epidemiology. You also see in this slide that a lot of the blood cultures are negative, and uh, that has to do that almost all patients before they arrive in hospital, they have had, often have had some antibiotic um, bought over the counter. And then there's the huge problem of uh, antimalarial uh, drug resistance. Uh, here you see. Um, just to illustrate the different antibiotic groups that uh, have become available over the years, and then the years uh, where resistance to those same antibiotics uh, have emerged. So we see all the common uh, well-known uh, examples. 
uh, ESBL, so extended spectrum beta-lactinase, uh, producing enterobacteria T. A uh, huge problem in the in the tropical world, um, especially also in South and Southeast Asia, with now numbers of E. coli and Klebsiella pneumoniae resistant uh, bacteria, over 80% in India and 60% and even more in China in hospitalized uh, patients. Um, the uh, KPC and NDM1 uh, carbamactinases, uh, also a huge problem, I'll show that in the next slides. Uh, MRSA, uh, colistin, more recently, fluoroquinolones, even linezolids uh, resistance, it's all, it's all here and uh, it's only increasing. And to illustrate that, a few examples, just to briefly mention it. Um, so, non-typhoid salmonella in Africa, uh, fluoroquinolone resistance is, is increasing there. Same for salmonella typhi, very common cause of sepsis in, uh, in Nepal, for instance, and parts of India. Uh, big problem with fluoroquinolone resistance, not really useful there anymore. And then on, on the right side, you see the carbamactinase uh, producing enterobacteria, say, a uh, huge problem in India, especially uh, around 8% now in hospitalized patients, but already quickly uh, increasing further. And it's not, uh, let me see, yeah, uh, the next example is not from Asia, but from Africa, um, similar problem, maybe a little bit better there. These are uh, ASBL producing uh, gram negatives. Uh, you can see clearly that uh, that that is increasing over the years, as is resistance to ciprofloxacin and gentamicin. So just to say, uh, antimicrobial drug resistance is even a bigger problem here than in the developing world. This last slide uh, that you see now is MRSA, which, by the way, did not start in the developing world. Uh, also a huge problem, especially in the hospital-acquired uh, settings. Uh, so you have to know somehow your local resistance patterns. And there is the problem that uh, most hospitals or a lot of hospitals do not have adequate uh, microbiological labs. So you will have to rely on sentinel sites, hopefully in the neighborhood of your hospital, where you get that information, what the resistance patterns are. Uh, lots of initiatives to try to curb this ever-increasing antimicrobial uh, resistance. Uh, but in all those guidelines, you have to realize what the situation on the ground is in, uh, in poor countries. Here's some pictures from uh, hospitals we work in Bangladesh and in India. Patients often in the on the ground, you can see uh, in the, uh, on the left uh, upper hand photograph it's very difficult to to work clean in an environment uh, like that uh, running water not always available uh, infection prevention often focuses on wrong things so i here have a picture of these overshoes that are not very useful as i said microbiology uh, support is mostly not uh, available uh, possibility for patient isolation, uh, also usually not, uh, not there. Uh, and then there's the problem of, uh, of the, uh, where to buy your antibiotics. Often you get a prescription, uh, and, and the family of the patient have to go themselves to, 
to the drugstore to buy the antibiotics. Uh, they often have to pay for it themselves, so they tend to buy as, as few uh, doses as possible. And also drug quality is, is a problem. Further, uh, of course, having a negative impact on patient outcome, but also on drug resistance. It's very important, as I said before, that uh, hospitals make their local guideline. You cannot uh, depend on, on guidelines uh, from, from Western uh, settings uh, for all the reasons I mentioned before. The causes of sepsis uh, can be different um, and the antibiotic uh, resistance patterns can be very different from, uh, from Western settings. Um, so this slide I won't uh, I won't comment on in any detail, but just to say that together with local doctors in a hospital in Workland, India, we made a local guideline for uh, for antibiotic use, uh, which was a huge improvement how uh, antibiotics were used uh, there. The fact that you have to start as quick as possible, uh, preferably uh, within one hour uh, when a septic patient comes in, uh, those studies are from Western settings. Uh, but uh, they are generalizable to uh, resource-poor settings um, because uh, that is something that is implementable. Uh, we have tried that ourselves also in, in the resource-poor settings. And then my uh, concluding slides, uh, just conclude, concluding, uh, summarizing what uh, I've told you in the, in the previous uh, 15 minutes. So key elements for choosing the right antimicrobials is that you have to have a locally adapted uh, guideline based on the local epidemiology uh, because the causes of sepsis can be tropical diseases, malaria, dengue, uh, rickettsial diseases, melioidosis as an example, and resistance patterns uh, can, be, uh, can be very different and are a big problem. Um, if possible, take um, blood cultures or other cultures so before you start the treatment. Uh, often that will not be feasible uh, because of the lack of microbiological uh, labs. Um, also, the yield in places where we do it is, is disappointing because of pre-treatment uh, at the peripheral level uh, by over-the-counter antibiotics. So the yield is often uh, 5% uh, only. Start quickly, um, uh, which is sort of uh, self-explanatory, um, and know when to de-escalate, change the antibiotic regimen, or stop the antibiotics. Uh, and it's not only antibiotics, of course. You have to think of uh, when you treat a septic patient, there should be source control, as, uh, as discussed by John Marshall. Um, and uh, implementation of infection prevention and control practices, even in settings where this is difficult, is very important to curb this ever-increasing problem of antibiotic resistance. So thank you very much for your attention. 
Thank you very much, Professor Donda. I'm going to ask one question. It sounds, you know, we're hearing about the implementation of new antimicrobials coming down the pathway, but it sounds to me as if we need to really focus on some of those tropical pathogens because their resistance patterns are very different than the, the typical gram-positive, gram-negatives that we might see in the developed nations. Yeah, I think that is true. Um, we always lack uh, studies in resource-poor settings, so we are often uninformed. Uh, but when you do a study, that can give a lot of information on what is important to specifically develop in, uh, in these countries. Um, it also sounds like the um, that there is um, one question around what to do when um, faced with a source of sepsis not clear and the um, non-identified culture or the culture-negative patient in the developing world, but it sounds like you struggle with the same problems we do, broad spectrum that has a high propensity for developing antimicrobial resistance to other pathogens. Yeah, it's true. And here we are confronted much more often that uh, there is a shot in the dark and there will not be cultures available after a few days. So uh, when to switch, uh, when to, to de-escalate, when to stop is much more difficult often to do in, in our settings here. Thank you very much, Professor Dondop. I want to thank all of our speakers at this time um, and thank our sponsors particularly. I'm going to remind our audience that uh, to look for the uh, newsletters that are coming up and um, to continue to ask your questions. Um, if you or your community has not signed the World Sepsis Declaration and received the World Sepsis Day newsletter, um, please do so. Um, you're so all news about sepsis and what's happening around the world. There's a, an active Twitter feed, I'll tell you as well. And uh, look forward to hearing about World Sepsis Day events on September 13th. And again, thank you to the audience and thanks again to all our speakers. Thanks for listening. And thanks to everybody who contributed to making the second World Sepsis Congress possible, especially our sponsors, which you can find on the Congress website. The next session will be Session 3, The Different Faces and Challenges of Sepsis, next Thursday. The second WSC is being brought to you free of charge, so if you enjoyed it, please visit the World Sepsis Day website and sign the World Sepsis Declaration there. It's like a petition against sepsis and also signs you up for the World Sepsis Day newsletter, which we send out every 6 to 10 weeks. See you next week.